0: Again, everybody has theories. They have all kinds of perceptions as to what happens after you leave this world. So every time you make a choice, you access your worldview. And so it's like a ball of yarn. It's comprised of your ideas and experiences and convictions and concepts and principles and standards and all those things that you draw off of when you're about to make decisions in life. And so uh, I want to give you just as the outset, kind of just informational uh, seven of the top world views in our day and time. I'm just going to hit these very briefly. All right? The first one is materialism. And materialism says that the only thing that really matters in life is the acquisition of things. Right? Uh, materialists believe in life, liberty, and the purchase of happiness. They confuse their values with valuables. They, they assess their self-worth by their net worth. The higher my net worth, the more self-worth I have. And so that's kind of the concept. And so um, the goal is to get more money in order to buy more things. And so the motto is, he who dies with the most toys wins. Well, Jesus challenged that worldview when he said, a man's life or woman's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Now, if this is my worldview, that life is really about acquiring things, which was my worldview when I was not a believer and uh, even at, shortly after I got saved, my whole, you know, I grew up poor, my whole world view was, I'm going to make a million dollars by the time I'm 30 years old, and you know, so whatever I had to do to do that, and we'd formed a company, and I was just working, 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 because in my mind, uh, that was what life was about, right, acquire as much as you can, eat, drink, and be merry, because you're going to die, right, so let's just do it all, and so this world of view also affects people in their decision-making process when it comes to finances, which we are a, you know, a, a, a nation of heavy debt, uh, credit card debt. And what does credit card debt do when it gets out of control? Well, it creates no financial margin in your life, which always results in stress that stresses with you 24 7. So the Bible talks and challenges us about this worldview. Number two is individualism it's the me first mentality. I have to think of myself first. And think about commercials. Have it your way. We, we do it all for you. You deserve this. We even have self-magazine. Individualism says, I don't really care how my decision is going to affect somebody else's life. I'm doing what's best for me. And so if you're having problems in marriage, you may bail out quickly. Because this, you know, after all, I, I deserve to be happy. Uh, I'm in this, you know, failing marriage. Therefore, I'm just going gonna, gonna to bail. It's, that's what's best for me. And so, again, Jesus had a different worldview. He said, if you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give your life for me, you will find true life. In other words, significance doesn't come from serving yourself. Significance is found in serving others. Number three is hedonism. You know, you live for pleasure. You just live for fun. You do whatever feels good because the most important thing in life is how you feel. Feelings end up in the driver's seat of your life, and that is a horrible way to live. Because your feelings can be so fickle and change so radically in a short amount of time and they're absolutely, totally unreliable when it comes to truth. And truth, you know, may be absolutely different than your feelings and we have a tendency as human beings to go with our feelings rather than truth. And so the whole goal of life is really just to live a life of comfort. And of course we know the Playboy philosophy made so popular by Hugh Hefner back in uh, you know, the early 60s. It's hedonism that drives human trafficking. I mean, listen, you don't need a product if there's no clientele for the product. right? So what is it that drives men in hedonism? Uh, it, to, to search out a, a, a young child for sexual purposes There's a philosophy of hedonism, that this life is about pleasure and I'm going to get all I can. Number four is pragmatism. Whatever works for you, is what you should do. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong or indifferent. <laughs> if it works for you, man, just go for it and, and do it. Pragmatism was behind Hitler's decision to kill six million Jews. Pragmatism was built off of survival of the fittest. And so that's really what drove Hitler, if you read the Memkoff, it was really uh, established out of this, and really science at that time was even contemplating this. How, how do we allow this the fittest to survive and to accelerate at an unprecedented rate, well, we'll get rid of the weak. And so Hitler in his mind was, I will, I will establish the super race, and therefore we will get rid of what we consider the weaker races. And so Proverbs 21 says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it always leads to death. And so pragmatism may seem right, uh, but it may not end up well. Number five is naturalism. God doesn't exist or matter. If that were true, then we don't matter, right? Naturalists believe that everything is the result of random chance. Uh, We are are accidents of nature. There's no grand design. There's no real purpose in life. So again, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow tomorrow we die. Um, There is an atheist, a very famous one, Bertrand Russell, who made a statement that I actually agree with. Here's what he said. If you remove the question of God, the question of the purpose of life becomes irrelevant. And so, obviously, if you remove God out of the scenario, then we have no purpose in life. So we just do whatever we want to do. The true, this, is, this is for true for you, and natural, naturalism is, you know, it's just what is good for you. Humanism, number six, you are your own God. You are the master of your fate. You are the determiner of your destiny. You are in charge. It's the lie that Satan gave Adam and Eve in the garden, and it is up to huma- this is a big one. It is up to humanity to solve its own problems. Well, we've been trying to solve our own problems since the existence of humanity. We've not gotten anywhere. Right, flesh cannot fix flesh. Right, flesh is that unredeemed side of you, apart from God, the, the flesh, the, the mindset that is, is tainted and at best, and our hearts, the Bible says, are, are wicked and evil, uh, left on their own. And so when you have humanity trying to solve humanity's problems, it just creates more problems. I mean, is it not true in our own society that the more the government tries to solve our problems, the worse our problems get? So what, the, what, what is the solution? Well, according to the government, let's just make the government bigger. That'll solve our problems. Many countries have tried that. It does not work. So, theism is number seven. God made everything by design for a specific purpose. That God gives us truth about where we came from, who we are, why we are here, where we are going where God is going with all that he created. And so all worldviews are based upon perceived truth to that person who is holding the worldview. Whether it's truthful or not is irrelevant again, but they perceive it as being truth. And so today people want to say, well, truth is relative, truth is situational, depends on the circumstances. But the fact is, real truth is always truth regardless of the time, place, or culture If it's truth today, it'll be truth 2,000 years from now, right? Uh, I went to school, two times two is still four. Now, I know common core math might tell you otherwise. but I'm telling you, two times two is four. It's just truth. And so God has given us a great deal of truth. We're always discovering more truth. And when you look at these seven worldviews, they're very much in competition with one another. They're not one in the same. They're not the same belief system. They're not the same driving force behind what people do and how they view life. In fact, you can take a, a little, you, it's like a, a buffet. You can take a little bit of all of it, right? Like if you're on the dating scene, you might want to be into hedonism at that time. Uh, if you come to church, you might want to be into theism. If you're cheating on your test at school because you didn't study for the test, you might want to be all about pragmatism. You know, I know it's not right, but it works for me and I need it right now. Right, so we can borrow from all of that. So certainly when Jesus was standing for Pilate, now Jesus, remember, has, he's been arrested, and you know, the, the Jewish leaders, um, they want to, to have Jesus crucified. And so Jesus is going through a number of mock trials in, in order to make that happen. And so Jesus is brought before Pilate, and Pilate was a Roman leader. So therefore, pleasure, materialism, humanism, Uh, individualism was all very much a part of the worldview of the Roman Empire. And so, uh, the bottom line is, Jesus comes and says, well, let's start in um, chapter uh, 18, beginning in verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor, of the palace of the Roman, by now it was early in the morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, The Jews did not enter the place they wanted to be able to eat, so they could be able to eat Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Well, Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected, and that was correct. Uh, Only Rome could execute, the Jews couldn't do that. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. What did he say all the time? I'm going to be crucified. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then? Pilate asked. Jesus answered, You are right in saying, I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to whom? Me. You remember a statement that Jesus made very early on in his ministry? I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? So he's validating that. And so Pilate asked, what is truth? And with this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And, of course, they shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. And so, Pilate, um, in this conglomeration of worldviews, wanted to know, in essence, what people want to know today. Is there such a thing as absolute truth? Is there really a truth that is true today and would be true anywhere, at any time, in any place? And the answer to that question Jesus gave, incidentally, was absolutely there is an absolute truth. The bottom line of the six worldviews that say there is no absolute truth, that everything is relative to a situation, everything is open to personal opinion. So when a person has that worldview driving their decision-making process than anything's a go, right? As long as society will accept it. And so you think about the things that our society today accepts that just 30 years ago would have never accepted. And so we're constantly pushing those boundaries based on worldviews, a truth that is always shifting. But Jesus comes along and says there is absolute truth. And so the problem is not that people refuse to search for truth. They just refuse to begin at the real source of truth. And Jesus says, I am the source. Jesus said to those who opposed him and his message, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And the Bible says clearly that truth not only exists, but it is knowable. And Jesus said it is knowable, so he said in John 8 32, for example, you shall know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Now, in our postmodernism, people ask, can you really know the truth? So I want to give you five ways that truth can be discovered, really as a backdrop to the main uh, thrust of the message that I want to do that's going to be short, all right, because I'm giving you a lot of background material. All right, how do we discover truth, absolute truth? Well, the first way that you find what truth is through creation, by looking around the world. We learn a lot about God by looking at nature. Isn't that what Paul told us in Romans 1.20? Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from all that He has made, so that men are without excuse. What do we learn about God in creation? We learn a lot of things. You know that God likes variety. Look at those around you. Nobody looks like you. Unless you're an identical twin, but even identical twins have some uh, variances or differences. I grew up with uh, Jeff and Doug O'Brien who are identical twins. Now, if you were to walk up to them, you'd never be able to tell them apart. But those of us who lived close to them and were friends with them for years, there were little things that you could tell them apart. But by and large, we're all very unique. God loves variety. I mean, just look at the animal kingdom. Look at the beetles. I am told there are over 60,000 different types of beetles. Why would that be? Why couldn't God just be happy with five different ones, or ten? I don't know. So God loves variety. Nature tells us that God is an extremely powerful being. I mean, think about the power of wind, the power of an earthquake, the power of a volcano. I mean, there, there's just a lot of power that is displayed, and God is highly organized. We have a whole ecosystem that is delicately balanced and highly organized. So if you look into biology or physics, uh, you look at the way that God has wired the world through creation. And we learn a lot about the value of truth. There's no contradiction between the discoveries of science and faith. There are contradictions between unproven science and faith. Science is nothing more than man figuring out what God already knows. If you base it on a theory that may... It may have, um, you know, you, you might fight against the truth of God's word, but proven science that simply unveils what God already knows, there's no contradiction there. And so we can learn a lot from science. Science is not the enemy of humanity. It can become the enemy, but it's not uh, if you look at it, and we're, we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks about science and the Bible, um, but, you know, God designed the laws of physics before every, any professor of physics even knew anything about it. So we know a lot about gravity, right? So we know about the laws that God has set into nature and how it operates. I don't think scientifically that we even know 2% about our universe. Do you know that 70% of our oceans have never been explored and our oceans cover two-thirds of our world? So there's so much more that we can discover about God through creation, truthfulness about God. And so those who are atheistic who just want to push God out of the picture, um, I've noticed that most atheists, and I've listened to them debate um, uh, apologists, Christian apologists a lot of times, and what I've discovered about most atheists is that I don't think their beef is really about whether or not God exists. I think their beef is more about They're upset about how God's running the world. They just don't like it. And I've I've told you this before. Almost every atheist I've read about, have talked to, is that their atheism began because of a deep-seated hurt that happened and a disappointment with God. And they came to the conclusion, well, there just can't be a God because if there were, he would never act this way. Isn't that true why many people don't come to faith in Christ? It's not that necessarily... There's, there's that big pushback about Jesus as much as, well, if I acknowledge that there is a God, and if I acknowledge there's Jesus, and, and that means I'm going to have to adjust my life to him, and I really don't want to adjust my life to him. I really want to run my own life and be my own God. I just really want to be humanistic. There's a second way we find truth is that we know what is true through our conscience. We are hardwired by God to really know what deep down inside, what is right and what is wrong. Now, you can sear your conscience. You can harden your conscience because you violate your conscience. For example, if you start lying as a child, you know, you might feel real guilty the first time you lied to your parents. Like, you just lied right to their face. You know you did it. How many of you did that? You know it. All, you all better raise your hand because I know better. You're lying right now. All right, so you probably felt a, a twinge of guilt. But the second time, it became a little easier. The third time, more easy, a little, and, and then it became a habit. And then you couldn't even begin to distinguish between whether you're lying or not, right? So it is all blended together. Well, this is what happens to humanity and our conscience. God has put some things in our conscience. For example, uh, we all instinctively know that it is wrong to kill an innocent human being especially children. Like, for example, when the Vietnam War broke out and our men and women were sent in to Vietnam and other areas and then they were accused of killing women and children, when they came back after the war, how were they treated? They were spit upon. They were called all kinds of horrible names because inside a a person's conscience, it's just like this: there's a violation there that should have never happened. Whether it happened or not, I do not know. Even those who are murderers incarcerated in our prisons have an honor system that if you end up, you know, harming children and then you're incarcerated, you're not going to last long in the open population. There's just built into the conscience of humanity. Romans 2, 14, 15 says some people naturally obey God's commands even though they don't have the law. This proves that the conscience is like a law written in the human heart and it will show whether we are forgiven or condemned. For example, if let's say I took um, a million people and we went to New York City on Times Square. I'm going to set up a moral ethical situation. All right, I've got a 92-year-old lady who's on a walker and she's blind. And she's on a street corner trying to get across one of the busiest streets in Times Square. Now, you're all observing this. And I'm going to ask you a question. What would you do? How would you respond to that scenario? And in fact, I'm even going to give you some options. Would you just ignore her and like let her try to get across there on her own? Or would you just like walk up and say, let me help you and give her a shove right out into the traffic? Or would you actually help her across the street? Why would you do that? Because it's built in your conscience. It's the law of God written upon your heart and your mind. And so there are some things that are just instinctively right to do, and we know that there are things that are instinctively wrong to do. It's called God's moral law. You don't have to be a Christian, Jew, or atheist. God has wired his moral code into our conscience, and we instinctively want to help people to do the right thing. Although, again, you can violate it to the point and to the degree that your moral conscience no longer feels, it no longer makes or responds in an appropriate way. That is a danger. And so we detect injustice, right? We just instinctively do not like to see injustice happen. Right? If somebody's being abused, for example, my, my cousin, um, she was, was, was born uh, very mentally impaired, and I remember even as a child in elementary school, the kids that used to, like, I, I came onto the playground to play, and at the back of our school, there's like a stairwell that went down, and these kids were like around the top, and they were spitting and throwing things down there. And I looked down there, and my, my little cousin Amy's down there. And so what happened inside of me? Like, you know, it's just like I, I went into a rage, because it's just, it's just the moral compass that god has given to us even though you again you can you can violate it and so sometimes there is a difference of opinion over justice or injustice but it but it might not but it's not necessarily violating the core moral value for example hindus do not eat cows americans do why do hindus not eat cows because they believe in reincarnation they believe that those cows may have within them the souls of their grandma, or their aunt, or uncle, or cousins, and so we don't we don't hold to that, right? That we don't hold to the world view of reincarnation. So the issue isn't over whether or not really we should eat cows or not. The issue is whether or not grandma's soul is incarcerated in that cow, as a, the reason why we would have a difference of opinion. So we have those, and um, that's part of life. Number three. We, uh, we know what is through, through consider- truth through consideration. God has given you a brain. Use it. Consideration. Truth is an intellect. It's rational. It can be observed. It's a map. Um, for 40-plus years, I've been following the map of the Bible. I found it to be true. It's always true. It's always taken me where it would say it would take me. It's it's always proved itself trustworthy. And therefore, it's a book worth listening to. So if you're going to read something from somebody of another world view, let me make you a couple suggestions. One is uh, you might want to consider their lifestyle. Does it match what they say? For example, never study a philosopher without knowing their biography. Many great philosophers either committed suicide or went insane. For example, Nietzsche was a guy who said God is dead. He went insane. Sigmund Freud, you know, committed suicide. He hated his father. He resented him and rejected him. Paul Witz, a professor of phys- psych- or, uh, philosophy, wrote a book many years ago called Faith in the Fatherless. He studied 100 of the greatest atheists of our, our known time and to see if there was a common value. And the common value he found was they all hated their fathers. They'd either been rejected by their father, abused by their father, or mistreated by their father, or ridiculed. Guess what what we do? We project upon God the values that we place on our earthly fathers, right? So if I have a problem with my earthly father, I tend to project upon God those same kind of problems or the same kind of concerns or values. That's just what we do as human beings, even though God is distinctly different. And so that's what they did. And so, obviously, they rejected God. You also want to make sure that just because somebody is charismatic doesn't mean they're telling you the truth. Or the three most charismatic individuals in, the, in uh, you know, our world was Mayo, Stalin, and Hitler. Uh, they didn't fare real well, right? Jim Jones was a very charismatic religious leader who led 700 people to drink the Kool-Aid in the jungles of Guyana, poisoning all of them. My point is simply this. If you're going to draw truth from somewhere, might I start with the Bible? Start with the Word of God. Start with Jesus because he is the personification of truth. Truth is more than, uh, truth is a person. It's, it's more than just a perception, right? So we, we, we find the Word of God. So this is the fourth one. We find truth through God's commandments, through the Word of God. And we're just going to leave it there. Number five is we find truth through Christ. God came to earth in human form to, per, to personify truth. The Bible says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. I am the way, that, again, the truth. Not a little bit of truth. He said, I am the truth. Muhammad said, I'm a prophet of truth. Buddha said, I'm searching for the truth. Hindu said, "I truth is very elusive. I'm looking for it, but I can't find it. And so Jesus comes and says, I am the truth. So why is all of this important? It's very important to us. Because every single day, you're making decisions in life. You're drawing off of your worldview, whatever that is. It may be a smorgasbord of worldviews collectively pulled together. Every time you watch a commercial, they're pushing a worldview. Every time you watch a movie, they're pushing a worldview. Every time you pick up a book... They're pushing a worldview, because everybody has a worldview, whether they realize it or not. Now, we are living in our society uh, in which addiction has escalated to such a rampant rate. Many of God's children are spiritual POWs, prisoners of war, trapped in a sin that they're unable to break, and it might be addiction of alcoholism. It might be drugs. It might be pornography. It might be gluttony or profanity or just um, anger that's out of control. There are a thousand different things that we can become addicted to that we want to be free from. And so addiction industry has come along and said, let us help you fight for your freedom from that addiction that is illegitimately holding you hostage. And many have discovered that even coming to church and praying, you have still not been able to overcome that addiction that has held you captive and in bondage. It is something that you've prayed to God about over and over again, and you've made promises to God, and you've done everything humanly possible in your mind, in order to break that addiction, only to find yourself still absolutely completely bound. And so many of God's people live for years as a follower of Jesus Christ, a legitimate follower of Christ, but find themselves unable to break this addiction in their life. Why is that? Because truth is a very instrumental piece of that puzzle if you're going to break off that addiction. And this is why truth is so important. That addiction is what the Bible calls sin. The master in your life, Jesus said, you've become a slave to sin. It is your master. Paul described it as a stronghold, right? So it is a stronghold in in your mental capacity that is keeping you locked up and incarcerated to this thing that is like a fix for you. It is your coping mechanism that's driving you in order to deal with deeper issues in your life. And you try to fix the stronghold without the right spiritual connection, and it just doesn't happen. All you simply do is deal with the symptoms, but you never get to the core issue or the core problem. And so I want to take just a minute and kind of give you some handles on how to take truth and to set your, see yourself being set free. So, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. There's a word the Apostle Paul uses here concerning strongholds that is a key to finding freedom in Christ, leveraging the truth on your behalf. It's it's what I call the biblical mechanism uh, for for deliverance. Christians can be in stronghold just like a non-Christian. And after you're saved, I know you discovered this real quickly, your flesh didn't disappear. All of those previous sin issues just didn't, like, flee. Yes, you've been forgiven. Yes, you've been cleansed. Yes, you've been wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. But you're still not walking in freedom. Even the Apostle Paul and a spiritual elite man like him in Romans 7 talked about the fact, I find myself doing the very things I really don't want to be doing. And so even he struggled with the flesh. And so he wrote in 2 Corinthians a key way that we can wage this war. Verse 3, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. In other words, if you're going to release this addiction, if you're going to dismantle this stronghold, you can't just go through the old pattern of how others may may have told you to do it. There's a key he gives us here. And I'm not saying, I'm not downing addiction programs. They're wonderful. Uh, recovery programs, God bless them. I, I pray that everybody receives healing and freedom from those programs, and many people do. But there's a key weapon here that he gives us. On the contrary, they have divine power <clears throat> To demolish strongholds, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Now, I want you to underline, and some of your translations may say something else. This is the NIV. Every pretension, circle the word pretension. uh, Yours might say lofty. That sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So you'll notice there's a pretentious thing that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. That word pretension means partition. Like if I were gonna partition a room off, and let's say in our activity center, I wanted to have two classes back there, I put a partition down the middle, one class on this side, one class on that side. Why would I put the partition in the middle? Because I don't want this class to have to hear what this class and this class have to hear what this class have to say. So here's what Paul is saying, is that when we got saved, we had this stronghold, this partition in our minds. You had the old thought patterns in life that's lie-based, and then you have God's truth that's being instilled into your mind, which is faith-based, right? The truth of God's word that, that is warring against uh, what is lie-based. And so the stronghold is like a partition. And what that means is that you can come in on church on Sunday, and you can hear God's truth. But for many of you, that's the only time you hear God's truth. And you walk back out onto the park a lot, and on Monday, instead of living your life on the basis of God's truth, you've jumped right back over here to the old flesh. And that's the way you live your life the rest of the week. That's Satan's Listen, Satan always leverages the flesh against you. We talked about this in Galatians 5, always leverages the flesh against you. He wants you to have a diet, like a diet meal on Sunday, and he doesn't care about that so long as you live based on the flesh Monday through Saturday, which is how many of God's people live their lives. So there's this war going on inside of us. Uh, We really want to do the right thing, but we find ourselves, like Paul, not doing the thing that we want to do. Because the key is we have to tear down that partition that has been erected. Notice what he says, that that partition sets itself up against what? The knowledge of God, against the truth. So you're still, you're wanting to be released, you're wanting to be free, but you're still living on the basis of the old flesh mindset. And what we have to do is we have to cut in new uh, neurological pathways into your thought processes, getting rid of that and basing your life on God's truth. So I don't have but like two minutes. We'll do a whole message on this in the the near future. So let me see how I can. So what the Bible calls this is double-mindedness. You know what double-mindedness is, right? You're trying to live in two camps at one time. Like, you're, you're, you come to church and, like, I'm, I'm going to live this way at church. But then you go back into the, the old swing of life, and now all of a sudden, all of that goes by the wayside. And we find ourselves moving back into the same addictive patterns that we had when we came to church on Sunday. So, God says, we got to tear down. So, how do you do that? He says, you got to take every thought. How many thoughts? Every thought captive and obedience to Christ. Right? So that's the tearing down of the petition. So let me just put it this way. Whatever you feed your mind on the most is what you become like. It's the direction you move in life. If all I ever do is spend five minutes a week in the Word of God and expect that five minutes to counteract all of the fleshly thoughts that have been entrenched in my thought patterns all of my life, is not going to happen. You've got to spend time in God's word. You've got to spend time feeding yourself on God's truth. And so in Jesus in John chapter 8 says, listen, it, you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. What is the truth? The truth is God's word. The truth is Christ. And Jesus came along in chapter 38 uh, and, and verse 36 and said, and if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So the The first one, the truth will make me free. The second one, the sun sets me free. The first one, I am free. The second one, I am free indeed. So what's the difference between being made free and set free? It's taking the Word of God and connecting it to the living God, Christ, the living Word. And as you connect it to the living Word, it connects it to your heart and your soul through the Holy Spirit And so when you find yourself gravitating over to the fleshly thought life, Jesus shows up all of a sudden on the scene because you're taking these thoughts captive to him, and he comes and he bails, he posts bail for you because he's got the keys to the kingdom that enables you to overcome that fleshly desire. My point is simply this. You continue in the Word, you call on the Son, you take that thought obedient to Christ, and you speak out the declaration of what God says is truth, and you begin walking in that truth regardless of your feelings. If you do not spend time saturating your thought processes, saturating your heart, saturating your mind in the Word of God, removing that petition by taking every thought obedient to Christ, then you will just continue to live in the old pattern of life. You will not be set free. Now you may cry, beg, repent 150 times, whatever you want to do. I'm telling you, you have to renew the mind. And the renewal process is all built upon, based upon the truth, which is the worldview of God that then affects every single decision you make in life and the pathway you begin following. That's what Jesus came to do. So let's bow our heads together.